Luke 19, 45 through 48. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My my house shall be a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's open up with a quick word of prayer. Jesus, that is the cry of our hearts. All that we have that is of worth is you. For you are worthy of all the treasures in the world. You're worthy of all the happiness and success in the world. You are are greater than anything. And Lord, we could be the richest man or the richest woman in the world and yet still say, I have nothing that compares to you. So as we look at your word, as we see the testimony of your entrance into Jerusalem, may may our hearts sing with how great you are and pray this in your beautiful and holy name. Amen. Well, a common feature of Western countries, when I say Western, I mean kind of United States, Canada, Western Europe. A common feature that at least is talked about a lot about the West is our distrust of authority, specifically institutional authority. So an institution is just an organization or society with kind of a formal leadership structure. So schools are institutions, right? Uh, The government is an institution. (laughs) Neighborhood associations, obviously a church. And for uh, many diverse, complex reasons, we just tend to have a suspicion of institutions. Just because an institution says so doesn't mean we're going to believe it. Just look at the popularity ratings of Congress, you know, who we elect to represent us as an institution, and no one trusts what a congressman says anymore. Um, and, and from, you know, my context, when I hear that, it's usually said in a, in, in a, a kind of a sense of, like, exasperation or s- frustration or, like, it's a sign of the times. No one respects authority anymore. And certainly an allergy to authority is not rational or helpful or, or right, Right, like if we just disregard all institutions, but then we get all of our opinions from TikTok, that is also a very bad setup. Um, But ironically enough, Jesus' greatest opponents was not an individual, nor was it the crowds of people, it was institutional Judaism. Now I'm gonna be using that word a couple times in this morning, so I'm gonna define it, but institutional Judaism would have been the religious leadership structure of Judaism. You had the Pharisees who were kind of the religious leadership in the countryside. Then as he moves into Jerusalem, he's got the Sanhedrin, which is the kind of governing council uh, with the chief priests and the priests, um, the leaders of the kind of established Judaism of the time are the ones who oppose Jesus the harshest. The crowds are listening. You know, they don't always believe, you know, the crowds don't always believe Jesus. There's some curiosity but they're at least willing to listen to him, but it's the leadership, the institutional Judaism that pushes back against Jesus the harshest. And when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, 
This opposition from institutional Judaism turns into full-blown warfare because when Jesus comes into the city, he kicks a hornet's nest, so to speak. But he, because he goes to the heart of institutional Judaism, the temple, and he has some choice words for what's going on there. And from this point on in the Gospel of Luke, the lines are drawn. Up until this point, the religious leaders, although they didn't like him, they didn't like his power he was getting, they were weary of him. There was still some, they could, you know, the Pharisees still went out to be baptized, right, by John the Baptist. There were still some that were following. But at this point, the lines are drawn. And you're either for Jesus and for the kingdom he's bringing and against the religious leaders, or you're for the religious leaders, for the institution of Judaism as it stood at that time, and therefore against Jesus. There's no middle line anymore. So to give an outline of where we're going this morning, first we're gonna look at is Jesus and the temple. The second point we're gonna look at is what the temple could have been and what it had become. And then finally again, which is kind of the theme of our, of, our, of our text, which is that the lines are drawn. So to give a quick context again, we are entering the last section of Luke. So typically you divide the Gospel of Luke into four sections. You have his infancy narrative, which is chapters one and two. Then you have the beginning part of his ministry, chapters three through nine, which focuses on his miraculous powers, his teaching, his growing popularity. You move into chapter 9 to 19, the second part of his public ministry, which is more characterized by discipleship. You know, whoever wants to follow after me must take up his cross, and growing opposition from religious leaders. And then here we finally enter into what's called the Passion Week, which is the last section of the Gospel of Luke. And we begin with Jesus entering into the temple. And this is why uh, I'm beginning my first point with Jesus and the temple. Because what's interesting is that all three of the, what's called synoptic gospels, with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they specify very specifically that Jesus, the first thing he does when he goes into Jerusalem is he goes to the temple. He doesn't go to the Mount of Olives, right? He doesn't go meet with friends. I mean, certainly he knew people in the city. He doesn't go see the sights. The first thing he does is he goes to the temple. And not just that, but Jesus in the story exhibits uncharacteristic anger. And Jesus gets angry sometimes. Certainly he had choice words for the Pharisees, but when we think of Jesus, how he's portrayed in the Gospels, angry is not the predominant emotion. But Jesus gets really angry here, not just angry, he shows physical aggression. That's nowhere else in the New Testament do we see Jesus physically aggressive towards people. And if the story in John 2, which is uh, a story of, John, of Jesus cleansing the temple, if it's the same instance as here, which is debate, but if it is, Jesus is, is using a whip. And so there, are, there are, are Christians that are frankly embarrassed by this scene because they don't know how to make sense of it. In fact, I had a, I had a uh, teacher in high school who was um, kind of an atheist critic, you know, uh, not critic, what's the word, um, skeptic, and he was like my favorite teacher in high school. I loved him, but we had very different opinions. And uh, he grew up a Christian, left the faith, and he would describe this scene as Jesus having a temper tantrum. Because um, he, it, it, so again, it's just, it, it, we just gotta be upfront that it, it, it's Jesus coming out of character to some extent um, uh, with how he portrays himself through much of the gospel. And so we have to ask, why is Jesus so concerned about the temple? Why does he make that his first stop as he comes into the climactic 
you know, uh, uh, part of his ministry where he's about to die, why does he start at the temple? Why does he get so angry? I mean, he, you gotta think, Jesus has seen all kinds of evils, all kinds of oppressions and injustices, but it's the temple that drives him to this kind of anger. And the answer we're given is actually given to us at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. If you remember, two years ago, yes, it was two years ago, we preached on this, but Luke includes this very interesting story where Jesus is 12, and he goes with his family for a, a feast in Jerusalem, and then his family heads back home, not realizing that Jesus is not with them. After about a day or two out, they realize he's not there, they come running back, they're searching everywhere, they're terrified, and they find 12-year-old Jesus in the temple, and like any parent who's been terrified out of, you know, freaking out, they're like, Jesus, how could you? They're angry, what are you doing? And Jesus' response is, did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Now, aside from the fact that he's calling God his Father, which is shocking in its own right, what I want to point out is Jesus' relationship to the temple. For every Jew, it was where God was worshipped, is where their God who had called them as a nation and formed them, this is where they could find him. There was a very close relationship to the temple. But Jesus' relationship to the temple was still categorically different. Because it wasn't just the place where his God had put his name, it was where his Father had put his name. He had a categorically different relationship with the temple than your average Israelite. Think of it this way. Marco, when she was in high school, one of her best friends, her name is Audrey, uh, her dad, Audrey's dad, owned two of the best Chinese restaurants in San Antonio. Um, San Antonio doesn't have the biggest Chinese restaurant game, okay? It's mostly Hispanic and white, but it was, they were very good Chinese restaurants. Audrey was, was uh, American, Chinese-American. Um, so Audrey, because her dad owned these restaurants, had a categorically different relationship to these restaurants than your average paying customer. So Marco and her, her friend Audrey, sometimes after tennis, would just head on over, and Audrey would show up at the restaurant, and like the servers would be like, oh, come on in, come on in. They'd seat her, and she would just order off the menu, just, hey, tell the chef to make us this. They'd bring out whatever she wanted. Of course, they never paid. Categorically different relationship than your average paying customer. Now, also, Audrey was emotionally invested in her father's restaurant in a categorically different way than an average paying customer. If those had gone belly up, there might have been some customers who had been very disappointed to lose their favorite Chinese restaurant. But for Audrey, if they went belly up, those are her dad's restaurants. That reflects badly on her dad. She's much more emotionally invested. She has a categorically different relationship with the restaurant than an average paying customer. That's the same thing with Jesus and the temple. This wasn't just where God would be worshiped. This was Jesus' father. His father had put his name on the temple, like signing his name to it. And so if, 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 if the temple was dishonored, if there was dishonorable things happening in the temple, it wasn't just a reflection on the spiritual health of the nation, it was dishonoring his father. And that's why Jesus gets angry here in a way that he doesn't get angry elsewhere. Because the temple is his father's house. And so he cares deeply about the temple. Now, I want to kind of pivot here for a second. Because the temple is no more. Right? The temple um, ceased to exist after 70 AD. It was burned by the Romans. You can go to Jerusalem and see the Wailing Wall, which... I should have fact-checked this, but my understanding, it's not even part of the temple proper. It's part of like an outward wall of the temple. That's all that's left. 
And Jesus told us in his, in, in his gospels that there was coming a day when we wouldn't worship him in a, in a physical building, in a specific geographical space, rather we would worship him in spirit and truth. And that meant that whether you were worshiping him in a cathedral on Main Street of whatever city, or if you were worshiping him in underground, you know, in the basement in a, in a closed country, if you were worshiping him in spirit and truth, he would be present there. So then, what, but, so then Jesus' concern for the temple, how does that translate to the fact that we don't have a temple? We ha- now have a church. And I want to point out something that struck me here, which is that if Jesus cared about the temple because it was his father's house, to such an extent that he would get angry, that he would, how much more would he care, how much more does he care about the church, which is his bride? Think about that. You know, if, you're, if your father passed down an heirloom to you, you, you know, and, and, it, and it was somewhat associated with him, you'd probably care for it. But if you lost it, it'd be sad, but it wouldn't be tragic. But if you lost your spouse, I mean, just how much more you care about your spouse than you would just about a house that reminds you of your father. Think of a, a wedding. You know, and we all know that moment in a wedding when a groom is standing up front and all the bridesmaids have come down, and then the music stops. Everyone stands up, and the bride comes down. And, and nowadays, it's like, it used to be, back in the day, like occasionally a groom would tear up, and it'd be very touching. Now it's like, if you're not bawling as the groom, it's like, what a heartless scumbag. It's very stressful. Like, I got, like, manufacture tears. Um, but nonetheless, in that moment, the groom is like, he's got eyes for one person. And it doesn't matter if there are objectively more beautiful, more impressive people in the room. It doesn't matter if the governor of Kentucky is there. It doesn't matter if the Miss Kentucky is there. He's got eyes for like one woman. That is how Jesus views every one of his churches. Right? Jesus doesn't rank his churches like, ah, oh, man, this church has got an awesome budget. This one's got a great building. This one does all kinds of outreach. It's like every church it's his bride. It's his bride coming down the aisle. He doesn't see anyone else. It's like, this is, I'm just head over heels. I think we know that Christ loves us, but I wonder if we fathom the love of a, bride, of a groom that has for his bride. Like, that's how Jesus feels. Not about the church universal, but about this gathering. who are gathered here this morning. And that's our great hope. Because if the Lord of life loves us in this way, we can trust him with anything. We can trust him with our ministry outreach to the neighborhood. We can trust him with our children. We can trust him with the future of our church. We can trust him with our finances. Because Jesus is head over heels for us. If he cares so much about the temple, how much more does he care about the church, which is his bride? But nonetheless, again, what was Jesus' relationship to the temple? He had a categorically different relationship because the temple was his father's house. And so when the temple was dishonored, it was his father who was being dishonored. And that's our first point, Jesus and the temple. But this brings us to our second point, which is what the temple could have been and what it had become. Look with me at verse 46. Well, actually, let's read 45 to you. And he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. What's going on here is, is, for one, we find out why Jesus is getting so angry. And he quotes from two Old Testament passages. The first one is Isaiah 56, 
where he gives a vision of what the temple was supposed to have been, what it could have been. And then he quotes from Jeremiah 7 as a condemnation for what the temple had become at this point in the history of of Judaism. So let's go ahead and, and, and look at those individually. First, what the temple could have been. Again, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 56. He quotes from verse 7, but we're going to look at verse 6 and 7 to get some context and see the expansive vision that God had for his temple. And the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples. Now a quick note there, when he says my holy mountain, the temple was built on a mountain um, called the Temple Mount. So he's referring there to the temple. This is an expansive vision, an international vision. God is saying the worship in my temple will be so beautiful, so compelling. People from other countries will come because they have heard God really does dwell in your midst. And they're going to come and it's going to be a house of prayer. It's interesting, Jesus, the part that he quotes, the way he sums up this vision God had for his temple is that it shall be called a house of prayer. If there is one bit in this passage that has just provoked my thinking more than anything else, it is this, a house of prayer. Why didn't God speaking through Isaiah say a house of sacrifice? Because when we think of the temple, that's what we think of. That was where the sacrifices were offered for the sins of people. It's where atonement was made so that people could have a relationship with God. But he doesn't say a house of sacrifice, he says a house of prayer. And as I thought about this, this is my conclusion. Because God knew as it was demonstrated in Israel's history that sacrifices could be skin deep. What I mean is people could offer sacrifices, they could impoverish themselves offering sacrifices, and yet it only be lip service just going through the motions. And God doesn't want our routines, he doesn't want our motions, he wants our hearts. He wants us to open up all of ourselves to him. And so we ask for it to be a house of prayer because in the sovereignty and mystery of the way God made us, he reaches us in a unique way through prayer. Prayer in a unique way brings us face to face with God. This is just from my own experience. So take it for what you will, but I do think it's true. I think it makes sense. I can be a jerk to Mariko or my kids. This is hypothetical, of course, right? Like, I've, I've never been a, but no, like, there are times when I've been a jerk to Mariko or my kids, and then I go and I study the word, the Bible, and I get caught up in the ideas and thinking thoughts about God, and I'm not feeling any conviction over how I just treated my wife until I begin to pray and then I actually begin to come into God's presence. And I go and I repent and I apologize. I in no way, now hear me out, I in no way am, 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 am putting the word and prayer into competition. It's like saying, which can you live without, food or water? Well, you're gonna die either way. You need both. But there's just something unique about prayer. Again, we can, we can even sing songs about God. We can listen to sermons that are about God. We can study the Bible that is about God, but there's something unique about prayer. We can't pray for longer than a minute 
without actually coming face to face with God. We've actually got to deal with the one who is before us. And so God calls for it to be a house of prayer, a place where we come face to face with God. And I tell you what, because prayer in a unique way brings us face to face with God, because that's the case, Satan will do whatever he can to keep us from praying. Have you noticed that? You're like, I'm gonna wake up tomorrow morning, I'm gonna pray. And then you're just tired the next morning, and you're like, I got work to do. Or ironically, that first Sunday of the month when we have prayer meeting, there's always something that will come up. There, no, in fact, there'll be 50, Satan's really good at this, guys. He'll bring up 15 things. You're tired, you're busy, you got work, you gotta study for tomorrow. You don't really feel like praying. Because Satan knows if he can keep us from praying, he can gut us of our spiritual power. He knows, oh dear, if the church comes together and prays, God will be present in a unique way. What can I do to keep that from happening? God's vision for the temple is to be a house of prayer, a a place where people would encounter the presence of the living God, come into his presence and know him and be known by him. Well, again, that's the vision for the temple, and as I've already mentioned, the temple's no more. And so how does this apply to the church? Well, again, we're no longer bound by physical space, and so that means when we pray in our small groups, when our men's and women's groups, or when we pray at home with our families, or even just go by ourselves into a room and we pray in spirit and truth, God's present there in a way that he did not promise to be present with Israel. That's a remarkable fact. Our house of prayer is something that goes with us wherever the body goes. At the same time, God's given us a building. A building that is debt-free, that is, you know, more or less in fantastic condition. Sure, we'd love to repaint it, blah, blah, blah. But it's structurally, it's, it's good. And so how can we make this building a house of prayer? Because I think God's vision for the temple and for his church to be a house of prayer, I think it applies to our physical spaces as well. Now, if I had a genie in a bottle, what I would do is I would take everyone in this church and I would move us out to an English countryside 100 years ago. We'd all live in a little village that surrounds like a little stone church. We could all walk to each other's houses, and, uh, and the church would be open 24-7. And so whenever you wanted to pray, you could go into the church, into the sanctuary, be lit by candles at night. And when I like, wanted to get out of town, I'd saddle up my horse and ride out on the countryside. and It'd be great. I'd write journals that people would read someday. Well, obviously, that's not going to happen for a number of reasons. For one, if we left, for one, most of us can't walk here. Some of us can, but most of us can't walk to the building. Two, if we left it open all the time, we would not have a building to uh, to speak of. So how can this church be a house of prayer? Here's my idea, and I'm excited about this, and I hope you guys are as excited about this as I am. We're approaching the season of Lent. As far as I understand, we've never done anything for Lent. It's a season of preparation for Easter, A lot of times people will say, I'm giving up like candy for Lent, which is very silly and very trivializing. Don't give up candy. Eat candy in Lent. Do something a little more serious. But I think in a way that we could participate in Lent and and also live into this, this, this calling to be a house of prayer is that every Saturday morning, now Lent starts in March, starts the first uh, week of March, goes till Easter, mid-April. Every Saturday from 9 to 12, 
the sanctuary is going to be open. It'll be heated. Uh, I'll have like a, a, our directory you can pray through. I'll have the um, uh, latest updates for our missionaries. I'm planning on even making a couple prayer stations, maybe even stations at the cross if we just want to go just crazy. Woo! And you'll be able to sign up for one-hour increments to come and to just pray. Now, there are 18 slots. I've already picked a couple out. This is back there, by the way, where our benevolence offering is. I've already picked a couple. My goal is to have every single one of those 18 slots filled up. In a church our size, we could do that easily. But it's an easy way. We can just, every Saturday morning, this place is going to be a house of prayer. Now, before anyone worries about security, I will be downstairs. We have cameras that monitor the front door, so I'll know who's coming and going. And I'll be down there to make sure that no one's coming in doing harm to our sanctuary. But I encourage you, sign up for a slot. Sign up for two slots. Let's live into that to be, for one, a church that prays and making this building a house of prayer during this season of Lent. So that's my idea. God's vision for the temple is that it would be a house of prayer, a place where broken and sinful humans could encounter the mercies in the very presence of God. The problem was, is that by Jesus' day, that was not what the temple was. This brings us to our kind of second some point, what the temple had become. So Jesus quotes Isaiah 56 to show what God's vision for the temple was, and then he turns to Jeremiah 7 to describe what the temple had become. Now, in this section in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah gives a long sermon that contains some of the harshest language in the book of Jeremiah. And if you know anything about Jeremiah, that's a very, he's a very pessimistic prophet, right? The word Jeremiah, which is like a kind of a harsh critique, is taken from his name. And so to be the harshest of Jeremiah's, I mean, it's, it's, it's impressive. And what Jeremiah is doing is he is confronting the people of Israel. This is shortly before they went into exile. Israel's at the spiritual low point of their history. And he says, look, you go out in your lives and you literally break all Ten Commandments. You, you oppress the poor, you commit adultery, you steal, you murder, you profane my name, and then you put on your little pious face and come in the temple and say we're delivered. And he's like, God's not, like how dare you treat God's presence like that? That's, okay, th- th- that, that's the context of Jeremiah 7. And this is what Jesus quotes. Again, let's, uh, um, in Jeremiah seven eleven, has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Again, in Jeremiah, the context, he's saying, look, this is supposed to be the meeting place for God's people to come together and and pray. And instead, it's a place for the worst of the worst to like hatch more ideas for evil making. It's a den of criminals, of robbers, of bad people. And, And this is how Jesus kicks the hornet's nest. This is how he describes institutional Judaism of the day. He says, you're just like them. You're trying to live one way and then trying to worship the other way and you just can't do it. And it was evident in the way that temple worship was was being carried out. There seems to have been maybe some financial improprieties. It says when Jesus comes in, he drives out the sellers. Now let's, let's back up for a second. This is before the Passover feast thousands of Jews would have been coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. That would have involved sacrifices. These thousands of pilgrims, they have to buy sacrifices, the animals, somewhere. And so they're buying them in the temple. 
And what it seems was going on was that the chief priests and the priests were cutting financial deals with certain merchants to allow them to have that prime real estate to sell their animals. And so then they were enriching themselves. Again, the people God had called to be mediators between the people and God to teach the people about the things of God were enriching themselves at the expense of people who were already very poor to begin with. So Jesus drives out the sellers. How dare you? But secondly, and, and, and to get this, we just have to kind of put ourselves in what's going on here. There were just distractions that were hindering worship. Again, there are thousands of pilgrims coming, which means they need to buy thousands of goats and, pit and birds and other animals to sacrifice. They're all sitting in the temple. Imagine the sound of thousands of goats bleeding not like bleeding, like, blah, I'm bleeding, like, meh, meh. And the people, and like the sellers, like shouting over each other to hear and, and bartering going on, and they've got to like relieve themselves somewhere. When I was in college, I went home to my home church in Pennsylvania. They had an Advent series where they had a real live manger scene on the stage. And the idea was to like, you know, we hear the story so many times, we forget it actually happened. And, it, and so here, like, they had, you know, a full-size manger scene with, like, donkeys and goats and sheep. And, and it was actually kind of interesting. Like, wow, this really makes it kind of come to life. Until one time in the middle of the sermon, one of the sheep just starts peeing. I don't remember anything else from the sermon. You know, I'm a deeply mature college student, but my, I'm just like, I, I, my, I cannot believe my eyes. Like in this very fancy, nice sanctuary, and there's just this goat just going. Imagine a thousand goats. I mean, do you get this? Like, God's like, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. We pray in reverence. We need silence. We need, we need some time to just be in God's presence. But then you have thousands of animals who are just making noise and are, and are smelling bad. It's, it's ironic because, again, this would have been way more efficient to have the animals in the temple ground. The people have to buy animals somewhere. Why not here? But in the end, it was actually preventing people from being able to come face to face with God. Just the distraction. The temple was supposed to be a house of prayer, but it had become a place of corrupt financial practices, of distortion. I don't, anyways, corrupt financial practices, commercial activities that were hindering true worship. And I'll tell you what, <clears throat> thinking of, of, of the animals being sold in the temple, again, think, and assuming it was being done to be more efficient, but yet in the end hindering worship, there's so much, there's so much ripe for application in that. Because we as evangelicals have always had a very positive view of technology. Beginning with George Whitfield, you know, beginning of the Great Awakening, he, he was novel in his communication. Back that day, like, you didn't preach outside, you preached in buildings. He started going to places where 15,000 people could hear him. And he started publishing his sermons in ways that were novel, that spread the gospel in really new ways. Like, we think of it as like, oh no. It was like the, it was like the cutting, bleeding edge of media of his day. And so we've always had kind of a relationship with like the new, the, 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 the more efficient, the, you know, let's just use it. But we've got to be really careful 
that in our use of like methods and medias and technologies, we don't actually then distract from why we're supposed to be here in the first place, which is to be a house of prayer. And that's why our service, when it comes to like our media technologies, is fairly plain. That's intentional. That's why we include moments of silence, both in the beginning to prepare our hearts, silence to confess sin, silence at the end to reflect. If the church is about entertainment, about wow factor, don't do that. But our goal isn't to wow or entertain. Our goal is to meet God. And so we try to do as best we can. God had given Israel a beautiful vision for the temple, but institutional Judaism had lost its way and is reflected in the temple worship. And Jesus had put a temporary stop to what was going on, but in doing so, he had drawn lines in the sand. And this brings us to our our third and final point. The lines are drawn. In driving out these sellers, again, going into the heart of institutional Judaism, driving out these sellers, Jesus is giving a challenge to the religious leaders that they cannot ignore. While he's out in the countryside doing his thing, they can kind of ignore him, whatever, it's fine. But here he's coming to their home territory. He's accused them of basically being apostate Israel. And they gotta respond somehow. Now let's keep in mind, there's still opportunity for grace. Jesus, when he comes into the temple, it's not condemnation, it's rebuke. And if there was an opportunity here for the religious leaders to humble themselves, to realize what they were doing, and to turn to Christ, and they would have found him gracious. Because at the end of the day, although Jesus can have some harsh rebukes for sin, for those who are broken and contrite in heart, they will always, always, always find Jesus to be gentle and lowly of heart. That's still an opportunity here. But the religious leaders instead head down the path of no return. It's a decisive moment for the religious leaders where Jesus has drawn a line in the sand and they line up on the other side. Hence the reason it says, let's just read verses 47 48 quick. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men were seeking to destroy him. Jesus drew a line in the sand. The religious leaders picked the other side, and now they're just trying to eliminate Jesus. They've headed down the lines. They've headed down the path of no return. And I tell you what, from an outside perspective, Jesus doesn't look like he's going to do well. The lines are drawn, and arrayed against Jesus are the chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men of the city the foremost men, the influential men, the men who have the ear of Pontius Pilate, who have the ear of maybe even Caesar. The lines are formed, and it does not look like it'll go well for Jesus. And I'll tell you what, the lines are still drawn. Jesus and his kingdom will always be opposed. The church will always be opposed. There are Christians who, like, you know, we hype up, like, oh, we're always a persecuted minority, and I don't want to do that. But we're fools if we, really, if we don't realize that there will always be opposition to the church. And there will be times when it will seem like the church, just like Jesus, is outmatched, outgunned, overwhelmed. Polls come out that are discouraging. We see spiritual hardness in our neighborhoods, in our coworkers, even in our family members. Declining attendance across churches is discouraging, and it can seem like the church is being overwhelmed. 
the powers arrayed against us are greater. And that's what it looked like with Jesus. So I can say, don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. The powers that arrayed against Jesus thought they were stamping out Jesus when they put him on the cross, but they were contributing to his greatest victory. And the truth still holds today. It doesn't matter how it appears, it doesn't matter if, if it, it, what is arrayed against us, nothing will be able to stop the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter if it seems like nothing's happening, or like God is not at work. He's at work in ways we can't see. He's at work in ways that may not seem impressive, but when we are able to stand back and see the scope of history, the way that God sees it all the time, we'll see, oh, the kingdom was never, was never in danger. The lines are still drawn, but we don't need to be afraid, for Jesus, who overcame death itself, is our shepherd and Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we, um, we ask that you will protect us from hard hearts. Lord, you still draw lines in the sand, but we know that whoever comes to you in a broken and contrite spirit will find you to be gentle and lowly of heart. Help us to be a people who really do seek your face. Help us to be a people who put prayer as foremost, not as an afterthought, not as a duty, but as one of our central privileges that we can come into your presence and actually come face to face with the God of all, with the one whom our hearts long for. We pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.